morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Michael, I felt very strongly that this scripture should stand alone. (laughs) That they really do say all that they need to say, don't they? John 11, 35. Jesus wept. I guess Jesus never heard of the saying, real men don't cry. But this is Jesus' message. This is his lesson to us and all the world. And perhaps he was very much in tune with the prevailing ideology that real men, men of strength, courage, and valor, don't cry. It was certainly around in his day, that way of thinking. And maybe that's why he did cry. He wept real tears among the grieving, perhaps in an attempt to turn upside down yet another harmful misconception of the human condition The tears are for the weak. Rather, his tears reveal more about who we are and who we can be when we are in true communion with God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Because, in fact, real men cry. And so do real women and children. Because tears are one of God's great gifts to us. We must learn to accept this gift again and teach our children. For far too long we have denied ourselves this great comfort. Now before we get into the backstory of why Jesus cried and what it can teach us, let me first share with you what brought me to this sermon today. Now I've recently been on a quest of understanding of sorts in regards to parenting. For me, it has been a 22-year journey, with my oldest son, Jackson, turning 22 in April, but I still have two young children at home. I think you saw one on display earlier. (laughs) Iris is nine and a half, and her brother, Bryn, just turned six years old this past Tuesday. I realized that I was seeing the world change rapidly from when Jack was a little boy, and what I taught him and what I didn't teach him, to what my two youngest are experiencing in the world today. We live in a new era of awakening, movements of inclusion of all people, marriage equality, Black Lives Matter, and the Me Too movement. These mean new conversations and teaching moments for me as a parent. Especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, I felt a great sense of obligation to educate my young daughter to empower her, and to give her strength to live in a brave new world that might actually consider treating her with respect and dignity and equality, something we're still fighting for, the very values Jesus championed in his day. I wanted her to know. I wanted her to understand and demand nothing less than full and equal opportunities in life. I think we can, us that are parents raising young children, and especially young daughters, 
and even older daughters, know that we have a lot to teach them. But then, choir, I ran across this article, a parenting article that just shouted out to me. It said, stop saying boys will be boys. Stop saying that. And stop saying boys don't cry. Because they do. And I realized, I realized that I have a young boy and an older boy to parent to. In fact, the recent research on the emotional health of our boys is quite telling. Author of the book, The End of Men, Hannah Rosen, in her NPR article entitled, Is It Okay for Boys to Cry? She states, the academic research about boys and crying, or more accurately, vulnerability, shows that society is right now in a precarious place. One body of research shows that boys will fall further behind in school in an increasingly complex society if we do not teach them how to be emotionally open and honest, able to recognize and navigate their feelings rather than stuffing them down. But another body of research shows that teaching boys to accept their own vulnerability is harder than we think. Despite our best intentions, our progressive instincts, and an increasingly gender-fluid society, the mama's boy stigma dies hard. But I do see the world changing, and I really do hope and believe that it's for the better. I have an equal, if not greater, responsibility to teach my sons new skills, new ways to set torch to the mythologies that hold boys and men back from accessing their emotions and crying. Yes, crying, if they want to, if they need to. This is something that we all could benefit from, the permission and the acceptance of our tears for the therapeutic and healing that they bestow upon us. But it's hard. It's really, really hard, isn't it? There are so many deeply ingrained beliefs surrounding crying. Many of the socially constructed ones are negative and sexist. My good friend and mentor, Garth Lee, whose professional work in ministry and psychology led him on a fascinating journey of discovery regarding tears and crying. Garth has researched and written extensively on the topic of crying, and he forwarded me an extensive amount of that research. <laughs> I about cried when he said, just a short 55-page chapter on crying. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. I poke fun, Garth. It was really fascinating research. And, and he identifies five taboos of why adults should allegedly not cry. I mean, these are the reasons we tell ourselves why we shouldn't cry. And especially, and I'm not picking on men, but this is what's been put up upon you more so than, than maybe women. Um, and since these are so internalized for us as adults, you know, we're often putting them on our children as well. So I think you will identify and recognize with the five taboos. I know even as a woman, some of them rang true for me. Number one, crying shows immaturity. Number two, crying shows weakness. Three, criers are too soft-hearted to be manipulators. Number four, criers are passive. And number five, criers 
have lost control. These are those taboos that prevent us. These are thousands of years old and have roots in patriarchal dominance and philosophy that pit the binary genders against each other and demonize and demoralize feelings. Here's the basic rub. Males are strong of body and mind and they don't cry. Crying was attributed to the weaker sex, females. Crazy, seen as an infirmity. Of course, we can recognize that this is all a fallacy. And if you don't, please see me after church and we'll have a discussion about it. But despite all the scientific evidence of the benefits of crying, okay, now might be a good time to tell you about some of those. So there are amazing benefits to crying. According to Medical Daily, crying is beneficial in the following ways. Crying releases toxins, kills bacteria, improves vision and mood, relieves stress, and boosts communication. There are even different kinds of tears. These tears can either be basal tears, reflex tears, and lastly, psychic, or tears produced by emotion. Although emotional tears do not or do contain higher levels of stress, I mean, that's what they're trying to do is help us relieve ourselves of those stress toxins. They have the ability to calm the iris down and signal the emotional state to others. If you want to know the physiological and psychological benefits to tears and crying, trust me, just do a Google search. There is a plethora of medical and scientific evidence and studies to back up the claim that crying is good for you. And yet, these taboos, the ones that Garth identified, loom large in our collective psyche and in our social narrative. How many times have you said to a child, Ali says to herself, who is crying, especially in public, stop crying, you're embarrassing yourself, which is like the craziest thing because if kids were embarrassed, they wouldn't be doing it. You know who's embarrassed. We are. We're mortified. People are looking at us. Well, there's a situation where a child is crying. They've lost a game. That's a big one in our house. They broke a toy. They took a small tumble. Someone hurt their feelings. And often we automatically jump to, you're fine. You're okay. It's okay. It's not a big deal. You're not hurt. Stop crying. No, anybody going to tell me that I'm not hurt if I'm crying? I know if I'm upset. But we do that to our children. Why do we say that? For that child, they really are hurt. Or they really are upset or frustrated. Why do we feel the need to invalidate these feelings and emotions and rush the tears out of the picture? Now, I just want to let you know that I personally... I'm very guilty of these tactics because I thought I was coming from a good place, that my intent wasn't to dismiss crying so much as soothe the situation over. I just want to bring calm back to the situation and make it better for my child. I didn't appreciate the inherent negative messaging that I was sending to my children. Stop crying. It's not appropriate. And quite frankly, parenting is the most challenging and rewarding experience on the planet. So if you've done this, if you're doing this, or you continue to do this, 
I'm not judging you. We have far too much of judging of parents in our social uh, world today. Too much competition. So I won't do that to you. I'm simply offering a confession on my part and an opportunity to see the world in a different way, a way that will allow our boys and girls to cry openly and freely with the secure knowledge that mommy and daddy still love them and that we, their parents, will be there while their tears are falling. We can offer up validation instead of platitudes and adjudication. I can see you're really upset. I bet that hurt. Sometimes I cry too when I stub my toe. It hurts when someone leaves us out of the game. Do you want me to hold you while you cry, or do you just want me to give you some space? This is like a whole new language, people. I'm working on it. What if the message we sent to our children through the trials and tribulations of childhood were this? I will be with you when you cry. I will suffer with you, and I'll even cry with you. Ultimately, it's a validation I believe that we all need to hear at any age. It's the very validation that Jesus so graciously granted to us. Recall back to our very long scripture reading this morning and our children's moment today. The story from John 11, those two words, that scripture is anchored in a story, the story of Lazarus of Bethany. Remember, he's the brother to Mary and Martha. And he's the friend of Jesus, not his acquaintance, not some guy that Jesus met in his travels. They are friends. You know, Jesus didn't have a home during his ministry. Where did he come back home? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. He even came home right before his own death, the same time when Lazarus was going through his uh, physical death. And death was certainly in the air because... Lazarus took very ill, and when Jesus was informed of this news that his friend was dying, I mean, you would think Jesus would run straight to Bethany and just dole out one quick little miracle, be done with it. But Jesus changed course, and instead of heading to Bethany to be with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he took his disciples to Judea. All of Jesus' actions were puzzling to those around him. Why not go to Bethany and help your friend? Why not go, or why go back to a place where they just tried to stone you, Jesus? None of this made sense to the people around Jesus, but he had a plan in mind, and he had a lesson to impart, part foreshadowing of his own death and resurrection, and part provocation of the authorities who were waiting for just one good reason to kill him. This was something Jesus had to do. He had to turn away from Lazarus. He didn't initially intervene on Lazarus' behalf, and his friend died. But Jesus had his reasons. In fact, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. However, just because there was a greater cause that that was at the heart of Jesus' decision, to ultimately allow Lazarus to perish so that in the end he could raise him from the dead. Don't for a second think that Jesus didn't suffer over this decision. Even though he knew the ultimate outcome, it had to be very excruciating for him. And let me set the scene for you right before 
Michael spoke to us. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Mary and Martha were deep in mourning, and the crowds had come to mourn with the sisters. And then, four days later, Jesus shows up. Now, I had to go back and recorrect myself because I said, which, which sister do you think ran out to meet Jesus? It was Martha. I figured she'd be at home cooking something. But she was the one, I had to type that, go back. It was not Mary who ran out initially. It was Martha who ran to Jesus and was crying. And they have a very unique um, sort of interchange between the two of them. This whole exchange about death and resurrection and who Jesus is. And, and Jesus is pressing Martha on her beliefs. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So this was the interplay that Jesus was having with Martha. And then eventually Mary comes too. But I feel like her intention was a little different. I think she was there to confront Jesus. When Mary reaches the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. So what do we make of this? Jesus crying. According to the scholars, the Greek word used for wept was dakruo, used only once in the New Testament. Literally, it means to shed tears. Some biblical commentators suggest it was more of a calm sort of crying. You know, that kind that just, you can't stop, it just, it just comes. Tears without words. Jesus didn't provide us a commentary of his feelings in this moment. He showed us. He wept. I think we can complicate the beauty and the simplicity of the shortest verse in the entire Bible. So let's not do that. We know Jesus wept for his friend, for the anguish and grief Mary and Martha were experiencing. I would imagine his own hurt and struggle over his impending death. But what we do know is that Jesus goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead, and the tears of sorrow around him turn to joy. Events that he would certainly know would happen. Reactions he could fully expect. But before the triumph over death, in that moment of grief, he cried along with Mary and Martha. Jesus wept. You know, Garth and I were talking this week about how full those words are. Jesus wept. I mean, you can read, you know, 18 verses of scripture and not get anything out of it. And you hear, Jesus wept. And you feel it. It's full. You can connect to it. If we look at this story, we might come to see something of God's nature at play. Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul writes, 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in this statement, we can understand that Jesus is the image of the God that we cannot see, but that when Jesus cries, we see that God is crying as well. It says something that we all must hear and understand. Crying, weeping, tears, those are of the divine. It is a part of our spiritual foundation. Now, one of my favorite uh, religious authors, the Franciscan friar and spiritual leader Richard Rohr, speaks about the importance of tears. Tears were a part of the formation of the early church. And he said that the Greek and the Latin fathers over here, they tended to filter the gospel through the head, through the intellect. While the Syrian fathers' theology was much more localized in the body. They actually proposed that tears, Garth, you'll love this, should be a sacrament. That tears should be a sacrament in the church. St. Ephraim went so far as to say, until you have cried, you don't know God. He continues to write that most of us think we know God and ourselves through ideas. Yet corporal, embodied theology acknowledges that perhaps weeping will allow us to know God much better than ideas. Being able to express emotion through tears or crying is a liberated state. Jesus experienced a state of freedom on many occasions. I mean, I would love to be able to, to list for you that Jesus cried 20 times in public. That's not the case. He cried two times openly, once for the downfall of the people of Israel or the nation of Israel. He wept openly for them and in this moment with his friends. But we certainly know how much he intermingled tears with prayer when he was speaking to his father. And in this moment, we are invited to experience that same gift of tears that Jesus had. Regardless of age or gender or conditioning, again, Roar writes, we must teach all young people how to cry. He says, now in my later years, I finally understand why St. Francis and Claire cried so much and why the saints spoke of the gift of tears. As we close today, I'd like to share a story of the gift of tears that were given to me. As many of you know, my dad, Joel, died of cancer seven months ago. At age 60, he was a cancer survivor. For 12 years, he had beat it. He was living cancer-free, but when it came back, it was ruthless and very aggressive. And by the time it was detected, it only allowed him three months to live. And those three months were painful and harsh on my family. Anyone who has traveled this road with cancer, I know you'll understand. And in these past 10 months, I have cried more tears than in all my 41 years combined. Sometimes they were hard tears. They were ugly tears, angry tears, tears of sorrow and tears of regret. And many times I was ashamed to cry. 
Many times I pushed those tears down because I didn't want my friends or kids or husband or even strangers to see me cry. But it is getting easier. And I now know that it's a true gift to be able to cry. That it's okay to cry. That it's good for me to cry. It's a part of the healing process. But even more of a gift than the tears that I experienced were the tears of good friends. In particular, those of Jessica Gatorna, my friend first, and church office manager second. And another good friend and daughter, uh, Bob and Susan Taylor, members here at this church. Her name is Jamie Kapke. And as I was writing this sermon, I realized that I have seen those tears, the kind that Jesus wept, dakruo, the shedding of tears. On several occasions, I would come to work, and I would just sit in the office in private and tell Jessica about my dad and my mom and all they were going through, and she offered silence and space while tears would just fall down her face. And it just struck me like, she's crying. And after the funeral and and months beyond when I would share my grief with friends, I, I worked very hard not to impose my tears on those near me. But every time I would look up and I would see Jamie Kapke, she was always the one in the back with quiet tears streaming down her face. Never about her, but bravely sharing my pain with me. And even when I couldn't, or wouldn't cry, at least outwardly. My friends were one step ahead of me, and they did what Jesus did. They simply wept with me. In those moments, now I can reflect that the divine was present. God, too, shared in my pain. Those were God's tears. So if you're crying, good. If you need to wait to be in private at home, good. If today, not today, but many years from now, when you need to and you understand that you have permission to cry, good. If your child or grandchild or little neighborhood children, if they're crying and you acknowledge that that crying is okay, then good. Because crying is good. Tears are a gift from the divine. Our creator gave us a built-in way of expressing our pain and sharing in the pain of others. Far from being a weakness, there is healing power in tears. Real men cry. Real people cry. Crying is not assigned or associated with gender, but our humanity and our relationship with God. A God who sent his own son to die for us. But before that great sacrifice, Jesus wept for us and with us. Would you join me in prayer? Dear God, you created us, formed us, and shaped us, and gave us freedom. In that freedom, we experience great joy and sometimes excruciating pain. You've gifted us a natural and healthy mechanism for expressing our deepest and most profound emotions. You gave us tears. You knew that we would need them as we experience the sufferings of this world. Yet we as a culture and a society have 
for far too long rejected your gift of crying. And in its place, we concocted harmful stereotypes, shame, and repression. But in your loving and compassionate son, you showed us through the tears of Jesus that we are not forgotten, that we never grieve in isolation. It is something that you, O God, readily share with us. And while tears are our gift on earth, we give you great thanks. For you have promised us you will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will pass away. Jesus, hold us near until that day. Amen. At this time,